This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello, and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. Your hosts for this episode are the great, the great American podcaster, Todd Truffin, that's me, and the other great, great American podcaster, Ken Morfield. That's me. This is episode number 42 for December 2013. Our topic for this episode is To Be or Not to Be, the 1942 film by Ernst Lubitsch. This episode, as you might guess, is not a spoiler-free discussion. If you have not yet seen the film, do what we did, go out and get the nice Criterion Collection Blu-ray and watch it. So, Ken, great, great American podcaster. Perhaps you've heard of me. Perhaps I have. Today we're doing a comedy, which is a little different for us. What do we have to say about it in general before we get into our conversation? Well, we'd like to start with some summary. If people aren't familiar with the film, they may not understand our great, great joke. That's a reference to the film. To Be or Not to Be is a famous comedy made in 1942. It's actually set in Poland during the war. So before America has entered into the war, it's being made. It actually came out after America had entered into the war. It focuses around a troupe of Polish actors played by Jack Benny and Carol Lombard are the married leads. When the Nazis invade Poland, they are part of a resistance movement. Most of the film centers around the plot to thwart a spy named Sletsky, who has gotten information from expatriate Poles who are fighting with the British and is going to turn that information over to the Nazis. The Polish actors, by impersonating various Nazis using their acting skills, and then Sletsky uh, are able to find where he's got the information uh, and try to thwart the plan, the Nazi plans to, to keep that from uh, falling into the wrong hands and from eventually escaping Poland. Uh, the film was, I was interested to find out a little controversial when it came out, both because of its proximity to the war and its mix of serious and the farcical that there were some people, I guess, that objected to or didn't like the use of comedy to talk about a war, particularly a war that was going on. And and to be fair, some of the, the jokes, some of the humor is, is quite dark um, at times. Um, I think we could you know, fairly call it a dark comedy in certain ways. Yes, or, or a dra- dramedy, drama. Yeah. Although maybe less of a drama than an action comedy. Um, right. A, an action movie with comedic elements versus a comedy. Uh, there seems to be some genre mashing going on. Yeah, I think if the film was made today, it, it would be, yeah, that action movie with some comedy stars in it. 
Yeah, To Be or Not To Be was remade in, I think, the 80s by Mel Brooks. And, while it's been years since I've seen the remake, uh, one of the things that David Callett does in his video commentary of the Criterion DVD is he mentions some deviations from the Brooks version and from the Lubitsch version. Uh, his thesis, which I found persuasive, was that Brooks foreshortens some of the more serious genre elements uh, and lengthens out some of the farcical elements to push it more into the comedy realm. So I think there's even some justifications for your time. If the movie was made today, it would be yeah. a different movie, but uh, it seems to be more of a comedy. Right. And that, that might start getting us into our, kind of our first topic of discussion with this film is, you mentioned there was, at, at the time of its release, a, a mixture of, of responses. According to you know various sources, it was a modest success at the box office, which seems to suggest that enough people were wanting to go see it that they were fine with with the humor. Um, certainly, there were those critics that found it appalling, and and that kind of gets us into that interesting question of the role of comedy or humor in dealing with very serious subjects, um, especially violent common occurrences that are happening right now. Right. You had a quote from one of the online essays that we wanted to riff on, or the Criterion booklet essays about dis-ease. Um, actually, yeah, no, uh, dis-ease was mainly my, kind of my, it seems that that's what people were feeling. They were, they were uneasy with, or there was a dis-ease created by some of the jokes. I know for myself, uh, watching the film for the first time, there were a number of moments when I found myself kind of being taken aback. Um, some of the, the jokes seemed to you know, cross a line of propriety that, that I felt uncomfortable with, and yet other parts of the film I was thoroughly enjoying. Right. The, I guess uh, part of the reason why I really wanted to get that word disease out there is because we had riffed some in our pre-production notes. I had seen the film before, and... I have never, in watching the film, felt that dis-ease or unease. I have always been more of a modern-day viewer looking back on it and saying, if anything, lumping it together with Chaplin and the great dictator of, wow, that's brave that they didn't wait until 40, you know, while it was still in the right. You know, it's one thing to go back and make fun of Hitler today, uh, it's quite another thing to, while you're in the middle of, of it, and, um, you know, Khaled even makes the point in his, uh, video commentary where some people actually thought you were losing the war, Hitler was winning, to make fun of, uh, the country that is, be you know, beating you or may still, may still win. Uh, so I've never felt that, that dis-ease. And we were talking about, or I was trying to think of, does that say something about our, meaning this time period's different relationship to Hitler? Like, has our relationship to Hitler and the Nazis changed? Our different attitudes towards war? We, we no longer can joke about war because war is a more serious business. Uh, our different attitudes towards comedy that were just offended or made uneasy? Or is that say something about me, that there are still people who feel that unease and, and I don't? 
In the Criterion booklet, they quote uh, New York Times film critic Bosley Crowther um, as saying things such as, uh, it is callous and macabre, or to call it callous and macabre is understating the case of the film. Uh, he also wrote, uh, frankly, this corner is unable even remotely to comprehend the humor. So it, those were Crowley's um, responses. And I, I agree, I think this, this question of, you know, what is allowed to be laughed at? I know certainly after 9-11, there were lots of conversations about, you know, is it too soon for us to joke about X, Y, or Z? Uh, or it, will it ever be? Uh, or you know, certain things that were funny at the time and then all of a sudden became off limits. And uh, or, or even we're off limits in an action genre. Yeah. I mean, I think we get Zoolander very soon after 9-11, but it's like we need to have the most generic kind of farcical comedy that's not at all, you know, comedy is an escape from right these hor- horrors of modern day existence, not a way of facing them. And I, you know, even getting away from comedy, I remember there being a lot of discussion about the opening sequence of television show The Sopranos which prior to 9-11 had prominently featured the Twin Towers. And there was all kinds of discussion as to whether or not in the upcoming season after 9-11, what they were going to do. In the end, they did edit and to show that the towers were no longer there. But I just I remember that being a big conversation. Right. That's a different kettle of fish because that's in some ways a reminder of something that you're trying to forget. I'm, I'm going back to an escape from right. it as opposed to a means of dealing with something. Uh, some of the analogous sort of film, we were trying to think of a modern day analogy right. of 2000 uh, or of to be and not to be. Uh, some of the films that we'd sort of thrown out there or talked about in pre-production were Black Hawk Down. Um, Zero Dark Thirty, Siriano, or Three Kings as being movies that were about military involvement that we, that was still ongoing or was still relatively recent enough to be raw. And none of those are really comedies. Yeah, Three Kings comes the closest. Right. To a a more comedic approach. I, I also thought about perhaps for me, in some ways, the closest analogy might be Team America World Police, because that's very definitely, it's not about a specific military action, but it's, it's real people. It's got Kim Jong-il singing, I'm Ronri, so Ronri, and, and it's very definitely meant to be comedy as a means of responding to contemporary situations rather than escaping from it. And... I'm trying to remember, I mean, maybe I just hang out amongst different people, whether critics were by and large as shocked or scandalized by Team America World Police, you know. And that gets hard because there's other things, the puppet sex and the the whole nature of the humor being gross or over the top. But I don't remember a whole lot of, well, we shouldn't joke about that. Because war is right. not funny. Yeah, yeah. I think the comment, the commentary seemed to be more about just that was so over the top, farcical, scatological humor mm-hmm. that he didn't really even get into questions of propriety in in the sense of political right um, 
situations. Now, the two other films that we mentioned in pre-production were 12 Years a Slave. And I just mentioned that because even though it wasn't a comedy, it was a place where I felt some dis-ease both in looking at it and talking about it. Maybe Django Unchained I would put in there as well, where I think people felt that dis-ease of somehow or another, it's okay to talk about this topic, it's okay to be Quentin Tarantino, but it's not okay to talk about this topic in that, that way as being perhaps race is something and racial conflicts are something that are still going on. And so we're a little bit wary or feel cautious because art seems to be part of an ongoing conversation rather than looking backward and you know, making a comment about history. Uh, and the other one is the new documentary, The Act of Killing, which has garnered some concern about is this entertainment or is this, is there something inappropriate or wrong about having these gangsters and thugs recreate their mass murder as Hollywood dance numbers? Or is that in a sense revealing them, revealing something important about them by the sheer incongruity of the subject matter and the style? So I guess if I want to parlay that into a question, do you have, can you, did you yeah, think well, of particular and, examples of films that made you uneasy to not, not as in terms of just quality or something like that, but that they, that created a commensurate feeling to you as to be yeah. not to be. And, you know, it'd probably be good to say here, I did feel that disease, um, disease. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, overriding. Um, it wasn't enough to make me want to stop watching the film. Um, there, and in fact, there are certain things that go on in the film in To Be or Not To Be that I found very moving, which is kind of interesting in the middle of a farce. And I do want to talk about those in a yeah. second after you answer. Yeah. And I guess part of it is I don't know the history well enough. I'm, I'm not totally up on my history of, for instance, when the American public became aware of what was happening in the concentration camps um, and how that fits in. Because for me, I, you know, I am the modern viewer looking back and I know what was happening in the concentration camps. And so when there are jokes in the film, um, the Germans making jokes about what they're doing in the concentration camps, I found that very unsettling. Um, and, and I thought you were bringing up of, the Charlie Chaplin, uh, the dictator, was very interesting as well because there, it, it's almost like the humor was pointed at Hitler. Yes. And so that, you know, it's like, oh, look, look at him being ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think in this film, part of that, the difference was it was the Germans themselves making jokes that was unsettling. And so I think maybe that might be part of the, you know, the change there. Um, and, and, but I, I think that raises really interesting questions because, well, why is it okay for certain people to make jokes and other people not to make jokes? Um, what is the, you know, if the target of the humor is different, you know, how, how are we parsing that as far as, is this appropriate or not appropriate or what makes me uncomfortable? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, you know, those are worthwhile conversations to have. Um, in terms of, you know, current films, you know, part of the difficulty I found was, I think part of my unease was because it was comedy. And when we talk about all these modern films that we were naming, the only one that came close for me to being close to comedy was Three Kings. Um, and, you know, the rest of these, these very dramatic films, I really didn't have a problem. I mean, they're, they're hard to think about. I mean, they're, it's hard subject matter, but it's, it didn't make me feel uneasy. Um, it made me, like, you know, these are hard things that are going on in our world that we, you know, can have some benefit of thinking through, but it wasn't, it wasn't making me feel uncomfortable. I've heard just maybe on the fringe of that kind of conversation, some of the dialogue surrounding Silver Linings playbook. I was thinking about in terms of comedy. Okay. Because it's a comedy, and yet there is that genre-mashing element of it's not genocide, but there is a discussion of a very serious topic, mental illness. Right that's embedded within the the comedy and that sometimes even the mental illness is played for laughs. I'm thinking about when Bradley Cooper comes in and right. does his whole riff on reading the Hemingway book or and it's funny because you hate Hemingway and it's funny because he threw the book out the window and it's funny because he's talking about this at four o'clock in the morning. You know, but it's also not funny because he's ill. You know, but, and, and he's accosting his parents at four o'clock in the morning, right? And and so, but then then is that just a matter of like what serious? You know, is there this hierarchy of serious mm-hmm. issues, or there's slavery, there's the Holocaust, and there is mental illness, and depending on how squeamish we are about that issue, how squeamish we can be to. Mm-hmm incorporate that within the genre of comedy. I also think a difference as I'm thinking through some of the differences between those that I always feel paradoxically helps me with to be or not to be is that is that comedic element or the serious element within the comedy, not the comedic element. Is that more or less of an add on or is the film really about that? I, I tend to give Silver Linings playbook a little bit more leeway because it's not just playing mental illness for laughs. It's about mental illness and being about mental illness. Parts of it are, you know, I said these people can never laugh or, you know, whatnot. And I think that um, the to be or not to be is about Nazism and fascism and some of the comedy is the farcical or the ridiculousness or black comedy as a way of dealing with things. I'm surprised we haven't, you know, dropped reference to the movie MASH as a way of dealing with some very dark things, as opposed to something like Django Unchained, where I'm less convinced that it really is about slavery or has serious things to say about slavery. And it's primarily about the style first and, the the more serious issue is just the context to give me the same thing I give in any other Quentin Tarantino movie and right. not um, to allow Quentin Tarantino to examine the more serious 
issue. I think you bring up a match is really interesting because that that's a film and that a film and a TV series that I enjoy greatly and I have no qualms about. Um, and and you know the film is certainly more gritty than right. the TV show ever was, uh, and yet that that never was. And, and I and I think I come back to who's making the jokes and who are the jokes aimed at, and it's you know. It's the American GIs who are making jokes, and they're um, it's all amongst themselves. Well, and um, what is the purpose of the joke? Yeah. Is the purpose of the joke to deflect your attention from we don't have anything else to say about this? Is the purpose of the joke to reveal some sort of uh, deeper truth or meaning about the subject that you might not be willing to contemplate in some other way? Yeah. and. And I think, I mean, for me right now, I'm just thinking that that's a question worth digging into more um, because what I saw in To Be or Not To Be, the things that made me uncomfortable, you know, were they doing those things? You know, were they about, you know, revealing something more or were, was I uneasy just because of who was making the joke or was I uneasy because I didn't think there was anything valuable going on? Okay, well, so let's let's be concrete and specific mm-hmm. since that's working through. Right. You know, looking at an actual joke, Callet mentions uh, extensively throughout his video commentary that allegedly the most scandalous joke in the film is between a scene between I think it's Zaletsky and Earhart, it's definitely Earhart and someone else. Uh, and they mention uh, Joseph Tura, the great, great Polish actor, <laughs> Joseph Tura. Perhaps you've heard of him. Earhart says something like, I saw him play Hamlet before the war started. And then he says, what he did to Shakespeare, we are doing to Poland. Right. What we are now doing to Poland, he did to Shakespeare. Apparently, even in the whole production, many of, of Ernst Lubitsch's assistant directors, writers, entourage or posses are like, no, you can't. Um, I found that neither to be the most provocative nor the most of, uh, uh, offensive. Yeah, joke. I, I was going to say the, the the joke that I found to be much more troubling was, and I believe it was again between Zelensky and Earhart. They were talking about the concentration camps, and I believe it was Earhart who says, "You know, we Germans do the concentrating, and the Poles do the camping." Um, and I just, I was like, "Whoa!" That really caught me off guard. And so let's look at those yeah. two jokes and say, what exactly is the film doing with those jokes? Cause you know, I, you know, certainly what's taking me aback is the kind of, well, making light of the concentration camps is one. And I think even in, in the, the joke about, you know, Hamlet, it, it's this, there is this acknowledgement of we are doing horrible things to people. So whether it's, you know, you know, we're doing horrible things to the poles, and then using that in a very, you know, to com- to comment on something unimportant, you know, an actor's performance, right? Um, or in in the concentration camp thing, you know, this, I mean, it it's a cheap play on words, really. Punning is the worst form of it. And, and, and in as much as I love puns, I mean, I was like, wow, that's, there's puns and then there's In as much as you love puns, it is the worst <laughs> form of humor. And so, yeah, perhaps there is this, this application of, or, or this juxtaposing 
of truly horrific treatments of you know of humans treating other people in a truly horrific fashion, and using that as part of a metaphor um, in, a, in a glib and offhand manner that I think is perhaps. Now the question is that's what's happening. That's the mechanics of it. But are these jokes telling us anything? Are they are they revealing anything deeper than? Well, I think they are. I mean, I've already tipped my hand in, in pre-production. I think one of the ways in which the film is is particularly risky for the time period that it was made is that it, is that it shows the Nazis to be not that different from us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a source of some discomfort. I think, you know, Callot makes the argument, and he was very persuasive to me, that there were other forms of propaganda that just made fun of the Nazis. Uh, we mentioned Chaplin. Right. He mentions Disney's the fear, Their Fear's Face, the, Donald, the famous Donald Duck cartoon. Right. Uh, became a hit single. There are plenty of modern era contemporary examples of humor, Team America, that present the other side as being ridiculous. And we don't say, oh, that's making fun of war, or that, that's very serious. There's actual people being terrorized or, or killed by them. But that in to be or not to be, it becomes within a context of a lot of the things that the Nazis are doing rhetorically the Poles are doing or the British are doing right. or we do. We don't make concentration camps but we make light of stuff with rhetoric all the time. I mean the classic example that that Callick gives within the film is that there's, you know, the film is just abounding with metaphors between war and sex. Right. Uh, the famous one being where uh, Robert Stack, the airman, is flirting with Maria Tura and she says something about, you know, her being, he's intimidated because she's a, such a famous actress. And, and she's like, well, I've never had a man who could drop three tons of dynamite in my bed or in my, you know, in my, room in, in my bedroom or something like that. And, it, and everyone laughs, oh, tee hee, tee hee. You know, there's this, this juxtaposition between something very serious, war and sexual innuendo. There's another scene in which all the, the they're in Britain and all the airmen are around the piano and they're talking about what they're going to do to the Germans, you know, when they win the war and that, that kind of both mixing of off color humor or, you know, seriousness or the use of war and metaphors is something that we, we do a lot. Right. And I think there is something that's very risky about, Portraying the enemy is ridiculous because we're used to, if you're in war, you have to mentally justify destroying the other person. And in some ways, the easiest way to do that historically or politically is to dehumanize them. Um, so you either to make, make them, them monsters. Yeah, monsters or ridiculous. It, well, yeah. And yet the, the weird sort of thing is that by choosing the path of ridiculous instead of monsters, it also shows how we are very ridiculous. Jack Benny is ridiculous. Yes. Carol Lombard is ridiculous. I'm like, you know, I'm more concerned about someone walking out on my soliloquy than someone sleeping with my wife or who gets to play Hitler in the big 
scene rather than then what's it you know what's at stake and so perhaps one of the things that's happening in this film that is uncomfortable is that both the good guys and the bad guys are essentially being painted fairly you know they they are they are being treated the same there is this this interesting yes the nazis are ridiculous but so are we and Perhaps that even-handedness is a little uncomfortable. I, I think it's uncomfortable. I don't want to overstate that too right. much. I mean, Lubitsch fled from Germany. Right. He, you know, and I mean, Lombard was very active in the anti-war movement and, or I mean, in the war movement and the anti-Nazi movement. And I don't want to be one of those Christian critics who paints with a very broad brush and just sort of right. says, well, we've all sinned and th- therefore – Genocide is the equivalent of narcissism. But I do think the film humanizes the Nazis in the sense of you can be ridiculous and still be human. And that's a very different thing than humanizing what they did or excusing what they did. Because in the element of even while it's going on and even while they're fighting for them, you don't have to make them. I'll use Charles Krauthammer's term. You don't have to make moral equivalents. Right. And say there's the same. There's, there's plenty enough for me. To, there's <laughs> differences enough between the Nazis and us to say, yeah, if I got to pick sides, I know which side that I'm on. And it's not just flip a coin like vanilla or chocolate right. or cowboys or redskins or something like that. But in the midst of those differences, if you recognize similarities, if you recognize kinship, then that can be very diseasy or very disquieting because that raises questions in your unconscious about, okay, if they are me or like me and this thing happened to them that warrants them being destroyed, could that happen to me? Could I become that, you know? Well, and I think especially in this kind of film where most of the Nazis that we see are underlings, they're soldiers, they're, you know, we're not, the only Hitler we really see is a fake. Yeah, I think those are some very real questions that could affect us. I mean, it's a joke, right? But Earhart, Earhart lives in constant fear of offending the Fuhrer. And, right. you, you know, Jack Benny is Selecki says, I won't tell the Fuhrer this. And then in the key scene where Bronski dressed up as Hitler comes in and Earhart thinks he's interrupted a, a love curse. His hand falls on the gun, and then off screen we hear the gunshot, like like he killed himself. And one of the more off disorienting jokes to me is after it's already, you know, after they've already won, and they're on the airplane flying out. It's victory. It's triumphal. Right. Or There's still two German pilots in there, and they say the Führer is in back. He wants to talk to you or congratulate you. Bronski, dressed up as the Fuhrer, says, has an open door of the window plane, and he looks at the German officer without a parachute and says, jump. And the guy says, you know, Sieg Heil, mein Fuhrer, and he jumps. And then he looks at the second guy, and he says, jump, Sieg Heil, mein Fuhrer. Well, okay, there's an interesting point being made there about the nature of fascism. Right. The very thing that allows them to follow Hitler and create all of these atrocities is the vulnerability that will come back on them. And so there's a kind of point being made with that humor. But there's also a point 
right, for the liberal person not in the war that says there's no reason why those people, that, that they had to kill them, or if they did have to kill them, that they had to kill them in that horrific a manner, that they could have just lined them up and shoot them, or they could say we're flying back, put on the handcuffs, and we'll keep you as a prisoner of right. war or something like that. But there is a little bit of that when we have the upper hand. It's important not just that we win, but that we humiliate, that we destroy the opponent, that we rub their nose in it. And I I mean, perhaps in a very subtle way, again, I don't want to be saying we're the same or we're identical, but there's enough common kinship in there to make you feel dis-ease because, I mean, ultimately, the difference between feeling that dis-ease at a lap and being scandalized by a laugh is, did you laugh? And, yeah. and then part of it is, is what you're feeling this ease at is your own response that there's, this is, this is connecting with something inside of me that's making me respond and making me smile and making me laugh or making me go right, right. on. And that's a part of myself that I don't like. And that's then I'm angry at the movie for making me aware of that part of myself that I don't like, as opposed to just being something that I don't like. Well, those movies don't bother us. We just, right. we just dismiss them. Yeah. In this film, it's not just a flip of the coin choice between the Nazis and the Poles. It's, it's a real thing is, is there is a real bad guy. Um, and the film does have a, a character that we center on that is, no, that guy's bad. Yes. And, and that's the Celeste character, the spy. And I, I think what's interesting, uh, Jeffrey O'Brien, who wrote the essay uh, in the Criterion set, makes this argument, and I found it persuasive, which is that Celeste is in, in some ways the center of evil in the picture, uh, in, in the characters that we have, because he is total pragmatism. Mm-hmm. He does not have any ideological reason for siding with the Nazis. He doesn't believe in Nazism. Um, he just believes they're going to win. Yeah, there's the famous speech between, the first bedroom speech between him and Carol Lombard, where he says, it's very important that you pick the right side. And she says, what is the right side? And he says, the winning side. Yes. And and he's very consistent with that. And you know, o- O'Brien's argument is interesting in that when we look at the film, his is the one death that is treated very seriously. And, you know, comedic things happen afterwards, but his actual death is one in which, no, this is serious. You know, this is an evil that must be eradicated. And Slutsky is Polish? Is Polish. So this is interesting. We've got a movie being made in 1941 with Nazis, and the biggest villain is not a Nazi. It's a poll. It's a yeah. member of the group that's been invaded by the Nazis. Right. You know, and I think that helps split the movie because the heroes are Poles. Right. Two, you know, the Nazi is this external evil, and then the real evil is this how do we know, respond? How do we respond to the evil? Do we respond with the everyday heroism of Greenberg who sacrifices himself for the cause of the the actors who are like, We're not professional soldiers? But we have to do something. Right. You know, or do we respond a la Zaletsky of, well, let's just read the tea leaves, pick the winning side, and then throw our weight, you know, throw our weight behind that. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, that's a very 
you know, again, in the midst of this farce, it's a very serious point. Yes. Um, that is being made about, well, you know, what is, you know, what is good, what is not good. Yeah. I mean, I think there's falling out of the plane or jumping out of the plane is a comment on fascism. Mm-hmm. I think Zaleski is a comment on pragmatism. Um, there's a place in which, in the speech between Maria and Zaleski, where she says, you want me to be a spy? And he, his response is, that's a crude word. Yeah. And, okay, that's part of the pragmatism, but I think there's also something very modern and very penetrating about that comment about that we feel indicted by because, again, blurring the line between the Nazis and us, not in terms of what they do, but we're all, in a, particularly in a modern or a postmodern setting, guilty of, if we've ever watched Fox News, been on Fox News, or watched MSNBC, of sort of manipulating language to make, to justify what we're doing over what we know it actually is, or to make what someone else is doing sound worse than what it is. So, I mean, I think embedded within the humor, there are a lot of very pointed comments about fascism, about democracy, about individual human responsibility, about moral invasion. And I think a lot of them hit the mark. And I think mm-hmm. some of that dis-ease is, is not just, oh, this is in bad taste. It's tell, you know, it's using the humor to get our guard down and then making us realize in the back of our mind that it, when I'm laughing or when I'm pointing my finger, I'm in some ways indicting myself, not because I've done that, but because I recognize some elements of that behavior. You mentioned. Oh, oh and I mean, if I can just put the, the, the cherry on top of that, that argument about humanizing the Nazis, there's one exchange. I, again, I think it's between Zaletsky and uh, Maria Trara, in which I think that gets verbalized, in which he says, we're human sometimes very human and he's making yeah. a sexual entendre of we have needs and her comment is i'm convinced of that that's a very when you think about it that's a very almost scandalous thing to be able to have a nazi say and a polish person reiterate and because it's got the sexual double entendre where on the surface level they're talking right. about oh, we're human, you know, we have human needs. And she's like, I know, I believe you, and I have to play this game to get out of that. But it also works on a double level of, I think part of what the film is saying is we're human, very human. It's, it's easy to think of the Nazis as being just this this sort of alien evil, like, you know, the mechas and Transformer, the right. monsters and whatever. At a key moment in the film, the Nazi is saying, we're no different than anyone else that you had to deal with and or difference is in degree, not in kind. Right. You know, and Maria is saying, I know. And I think this is a nice little pivot place. You had mentioned Greenberg and we were talking about, you know, the humanizing of these characters. And for me, one of the most affecting parts of the film, the good part, I mean, let's all these comments on bad and evil and that, that there's also a really poignant, comment on heroism um, and and that is this character Greenberg who throughout the whole film he's 
you know, one of the guys that just stands in the background of the theater troupe holding a spear or mm-hmm. doing the extra, the extra. Um, and, and there is this really great moment where uh, Greenberg and I think it's Bronsky are actually wishing for the days when they could just hold a spear. You know, the, the Nazi occupation has come in and everything is really bad. And they're just, wow, wouldn't it be great to just be able to, to stand somewhere and hold, to, to be the extra. Yeah, those days are gone. And but throughout the, throughout the film, Greenberg is shown. Is it three times? Maybe four, three, three um, delivering the Shylock speech from Merchant of Venice of uh, "Am I not human? Do I not bleed?" in the, the whole whole speech. And well, you mentioned that the commentator saying how it changes with. Each delivery, I mean, the delivery is the does, same. Yeah, the delivery doesn't change. Delivery is the same, but the, the impact of it does. The first time we see it, it's, it's, you know, it's just, oh, there's the guy, he's giving his speech. That's nice. Um, the actors are in the coffee room and they're rehearsing or birds are just like, oh, wouldn't it be great to give this speech yeah. and here's how I would do it. Right. Um, you know, the second time he gives the speech, it's, you know, the context is different. And during the occupation, during the, and it, it's like I'm human, you know. As a Polish person, I mm-hmm. am human. It's me. And then in the final delivery, um, it, it builds even more. But it, it it is that he's like I am human, and I'm doing something. And we we see in Greenberg the extra, the guy who's not the hero. Um, and a moment when, in order for their plans to succeed, they need someone to create a diversion, to step into a whole group of Gestapo officers um, and create a diversion, and he does it. Yeah. And willing, he's the only character, he's the only main character who dies. Um, and he, he truly sacrifices himself. And, again, it's, it's one of those moments in the film that is not pit play for laughs. It is, it is very poignant. Um, and and we see that, uh, that heroism of the normal guy. Right. And I think that's you know, part of the dis-ease as well. I mentioned in the show notes. I mean, so now we have a movie with Nazis, but the real villain is an everyday guy. We also have a movie with soldiers, the airmen, the Robert Stack character. Right. And he's not the real hero. And to a certain extent, the actors are the heroes. But even amongst the actors, the lead actor is not the biggest hero. Um, that's sure. one. That's one of the changes I think to the detriment of the Mel Brooks mm. version. The real heroes are the heroism is distributed amongst the whole troop. They right. all Maria, Joseph, Bronsky, by Hitler. And if you have to pick one supreme amongst them, it's Greenberg, because Greenberg is the one that sacrifices. And I think that makes us, I, I mean, I give a riff in pre-production, I think that makes us a little bit uneasy, because fundamentally our our modern orientation towards war is we've gotten a little bit more comfortable with it, because we're more comfortable with war is something that is fought by professional soldiers. We don't have a draft anymore. And so, you know, we can be at war for 12 years in Afghanistan, and I could, you know, the president could say, we want to continue war. And I'm like, well, sure, why not? What's it to me? 
how does that affect my life? I'm not, my butter's not being rationed. My life's not in any really imminent danger. War is something that's fought between villains over there and heroes over there, and that I'm not expected to participate in. And I think one of the very subversive things about the film is that, I mean, on the surface, the the drama, the war elements of the film are very traditional, but when you actually look at it carefully, the battles are being fought by the everyday people, and the airman spends, the professional soldier spends most of his time locked up in Maria's bedroom, and really is not at all... Yeah, and he, he's neutralized very quickly. Not at all instrumental in the success of the plan or, or thwarting it. And the Nazis are secondary and evil to Zaletsky. And so I think that's hobby horse of my friend Stephen Gradanis, uh, you know, is about, you know, wishing that modern day films had more everyday heroism. I think we talked about that a little bit in the White House now. Right about, like, well, we've got the exception, you know, American exceptionalism is going to save the day, um, and who cares if the everyday citizens get killed, you know, or get mowed down. That just makes the John McClane character, the super FBI agent, uh, that much more impressive because he's able to, right. the Jason Bourne character. And I think we're hearkening back to a different day uh, where Lubitsch is saying, you know, what's going to defeat the Nazis, even though this was the age in which a lot of superheroes were born, was not, it's not going to be Captain America. It's going to be the everyday Greenbergs. And that makes us uneasy because that's like, well, that puts a demand on us. And then all of right. a sudden it's like, well, gee, I, I'm responsible. Gee, all of a sudden I have a very different feeling about that war in Vietnam or that war in Afghanistan or that war in Iraq. That is that something that I would give my life for? And they don't hesitate either. They don't. It's it's no. it's not like they you know, wrestle with it and say, you know, it, it's just like, of course, something must be done, and we have to do it. And I'm the best one. I mean, in Greenberg's case, he's like, I'm the best one for this, so it's me. I yeah, go. that's you know, that's just that's the way that it is. And going back to my original question about is it about me? Is it about our orientation towards comedy changing? Is it about our orientation towards war changing? Part of what we're saying is a little bit of a little bit of all three. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. This feels like a good ending point for our conversation. Unless you have anything else you want to add, I we may edit it, but I just wanted to quickly say, uh, Carol Lombard is terrific, and yes. watching her performance made me think about Paul Haggis's riff in the misrepresentation documentary uh, where he talked about it seemed like in the 30s and 40s we were a lot more comfortable with complex roles for women even in comedies she's she's a seductress she's a wife she bickers with her husband uh, she's also willing to put herself in harm's way she's very she's just a very complex character and, and Lombard's very much up to the task and yeah there's one point in which they're trying to figure out what to do with Selesky Selesky has invited her for dinner and she says you know I'd hate to think about going back there but if we can't think of anything better I'm gonna have to go to dinner with them and I'm gonna have to kill him and I just look what a change from the modern day orientation where the woman is so often ornamental 
or designed to be put in jeopardy to be kept in that room. So the guy has to one more complication that the guy has to overcome. I don't have to just defeat them. I have to break in and break her out because she's totally useless. And one of the things I love about this movie is that Maria is gets to participate. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't seem to be at all exceptional uh, that she is every much a part of the team or a part of the group and an equal member of the troop. And, and, and Carol Lombard is wow. She's terrific. And just a historical note, this was her last film performance uh, before the film was released. She did was killed in an airplane accident selling war bonds, um, which kind of added to some of the dis-ease that people were having with the film as well, as she had died. Yeah, although it's interesting, Khaled went back and said there's not a whole lot of evidence one way or the other to whether that affected the box office because there it, also it's hey it's her last film type of, yeah it, well he he drew the analogy with Heath Ledger and yeah. the Dark Knight where sometimes that too can become a sort of morbid curiosity or a very poignant memorial right and I want to go see it you know as a way of memorializing her and it is certainly a powerful powerful performance oh yeah it's, she's terrific so, all right, well, it sounds like it's a thumbs up from Ken. He likes the film. I, I did. I enjoyed it. I laughed. Um, I, I, as I said, found Greenberg, that, that whole plot line to be very poignant. Um, whatever misgivings I have about some of the humor were overshadowed by the, the goodness of the, the rest of it. So, all right. Well, thank you, Ken. And thank all of you for listening to The Thin Place. If you have comments on this episode, please visit our website at www.filmgeekradio.com to leave a comment. You can email us at thethinplace at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow Ken on Twitter at Ken Moorfield or at his blog, the number one morefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!